From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. Well, this morning, uh, the lectionary has us in the Gospel of John here on the second Sunday in Lent. And we're going to be looking at a selection from John chapter 3, so you're probably beginning to have a sense of where we might be headed. Uh, But we will be reading verses 1 through 17. Uh, Hear now the word of the Lord. This is what John writes. He says that there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and he came to Jesus at night, and he said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew or born from above or born again, that it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Well, Nicodemus asked, he said, well, how is it possible for an adult to be born It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and born, isn't it? Thanks for the image, John, or Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. For whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. Uh, God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus said, how? How are these things possible? And Jesus answered, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one's gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So uh, before we dig in this morning, I feel like every once in a while there's a sermon or topic, a conversation that we need to have together as a church um, that might stir some stuff up for folks um, and create a little uh, maybe bit of trauma. And so I just want to offer kind of a trigger warning of sorts up front, Uh, depending on what your own human experience has been. Um, and I don't know where all you've been and what you've seen up to this point. Also, a bit of just the way you're wired, the, the kind of conversation, the place we're going to hang out today uh, may feel unsafe. And, um, and so if that's you, 
I want you to know that I fully appreciate and respect uh, your need to, to get up and, and to move on and take a beautiful walk on this spring morning if that's, if that's you. Um, the thing we're going to talk about this morning is snakes. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so here is, yeah, it, it won't go on forever, but it's, it's important to, uh, to what we're going to spend our time doing. Uh, so uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, someone here in our community uh, confided in me that, uh, that they and their spouse uh, were doing a little spring cleaning. They went down to the basement of their house, kind of the playroom. Kids all hang out, movie theater room, whatever. They start moving some things around, deciding to get rid of some furniture. Some other, yeah, you see where this is going. As they pull something away, they find a very real and a very alive snake. And uh, I honestly, I can't stop thinking about this poor family. And I, I don't know how they're still living in their house, right? <laughs> like, that's, we're moving. We'll burn the whole place. We'll start over. Like, this is just unthinkable. Um, I, uh, I can't look at snakes. I can't even look at the screen uh, of these snakes. I, I remember when my kids were little and we'd go to the science museum here in town, there's like this one hallway, and some of you already know, it's like there's one hallway with these snakes in a box with a little bit of plexiglass, and it's not even that compelling or big of an exhibit, but it's just enough that like my heart would start ticking faster as we got close to that exhibit. And then as we would near it, my kids would want to go look in the glass, and I would take like a very wide, like, come on guys, let's go, there's turtles down here, let's go, we got to keep moving, you know? I can't it was a couple of years ago. I was at Umstead Park on this beautiful, uh, it was actually a fall day, I think, spring, fall. Some of you are going to know. I can't remember. It was a day like this. And um, I'm walking around and I'm looking at this beautiful pond. And as I look over, there's this tree that had fallen into the pond. And there on top of that tree, I'm, I'm telling you, hundreds of snakes, all just on top of each. I think they were having like a good time, but like it... <laughs> I will never get that scene out of my head. Like, so uh, aphidiophobia is the technical name for fear of snakes. Um, and uh, as long as people have been doing surveys about this stuff, it has regularly showed up in the top five, right? The, at least 50% of people will report being terribly afraid of snakes, which feels completely reasonable to me when you consider that these animals that have no arms and legs um, can move at a speed of six miles per hour and climb trees and live underground and come out at dark. And I'm just like, I think we have enough intel here to say, right? Uh, in fact, there's some uh, evolutionary biologists who believe that we actually, some of us actually have like a, go uh, a snake-fearing gene. Uh, and that this was kind of an uh, um, evolutionary advantage for us, that snakes and humans have basically been around for as long as the, we've both been here the whole time that we've each been here, and we've always been a threat to one another. And so over time, some of us, the way we stuck around and survived is that we just were always looking for snakes and are scared of them, right? It's like in our genes that we, that we hate snakes. Here's the problem with that, is that it's the last thing I want to look at, pay attention to, or think about, but the scriptures themselves are like full of snakes, like full of snakes. I did a quick Google search this week and found like 60 different passages, six zero different passages in the scripture that reference snakes. Not a single one about golden retrievers, right? Like <laughs> just all snakes. And, um, and 
And they're not just like small bit players in sort of tucked away, unimportant passages. Like they show up in all the most critical, fundamental moments. Like you're already doing the inventory and go, yeah, like the beginning of the story, like Genesis 2 and 3, we got some snake action that's real important, right? Then this morning, I just read you a passage of the most famous verse in the world. When you've seen it every ball game, been on the other side of bullhorns of, the rest, John 3, 16. What we just conveniently skip over and ignore, probably because in part of our adidiophobia, right, uh, is that the whole image that when Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he's providing commentary on an image from numbers in the Old Testament about a snake, right? And so this morning, I, I want us to get in the mix with the snakes and wrestle for a minute that we might hear what Jesus is offering on this most important passage. And so, uh, essentially what happens is Nicodemus, this religious leader, he comes to Jesus and he says, we're watching what you're doing, never seen anything like it. You're building something this world has never seen, and where is it headed? And how might one participate? And what would it look like to join your ranks? And Jesus says, well, if you want to come hang out with me, basically what it looks like when you join kind of this thing that I'm building is uh, it's sort of like if you were to, to be born uh, all over again. This is, the kind, this is what the experience is like of following me. You, it's like being just completely born into a whole new life. And he's got questions about how that's even possible. He goes, okay, okay, if that's not working for you, it's sort of like somebody where the wind was headed in one direction and then all of a sudden it picks up and goes in a completely different direction. This is what it looks like when you get caught up in the kingdom that I'm building. It's like people who, who emerge with a whole new life who the winds just change and they start blowing in a different direction. And so Nicodemus says to him, how? Like, I'm, I'm going to just keep asking you the same question until you, how? How does somebody get a new life? How? How does the wind change direction? How are these things happening around you? And that's when Jesus says this to him. He points back to the story. And he says, this is John 3, 14 and 15, right? If you want to understand how this happens, and he tells him you're not going to understand because you didn't even understand my wind or birth metaphor, but I'll give you one. If you want to know how this works, the best image I, that comes to mind for me, Jesus, this Jewish leader, is this story from the Hebrew Scriptures, one that you've probably never heard of or paid much attention to, but that he clearly knew. And he references it, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one, that's Jesus, Son of God, be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So, Nicodemus, religious leader, scholar, he says, how is it that somebody's life gets transformed in this profound way? He says, the best image I can come up with is it's a lot like what happened in Numbers 21 when Moses lifted up the snake, and so that's kind of what I'm doing, right? Now, for us who don't know that story, it's, it's only like six verses. You can go back and read it yourself, but essentially here's what's happened, is that uh, you likely remember that um, God chooses uh, a special group of people, uh, the Jews, who he says, I am going to so uh, be in such loving covenant with you. I'm going to pour out kind of my blessings on you, and you're going to uh, obey and serve me in such this like holy, beautiful way. 
that you'll, be, you'll, you'll tell the whole world through your people, through your story, the whole world will come to know what God is actually like. I'm going to concentrate sort of my love and, and, and my uh, energies in you, and you're going to concentrate on me, and as we do so, the whole world will come to know what God is like, right? The problem is that these folks are, they find themselves oppressed, they're enslaved, they're in Egypt, and so part of the journey to becoming the people that God's calling them to be and being good news to the whole world is that he says to Moses, I want you to go free my people. They're enslaved in Egypt, right? And this is the whole Moses-Pharaoh showdown, and a whole bunch of things take place, and eventually Pharaoh crumbles and says, get out of here, and and the Israel, the Jewish people, are freed from captivity, and they're promised a whole new land, a whole new place where they'll be in this perfect, loving kind of relationship with God, and the whole world will see it. They'll be up on kind of a pedestal, have their own place and nation. The challenge is, from the time that they're released from slavery to the time that they enter this promised land, ends up being 40 years. And for 40 years, they wander in this desert trying to make their way. And so the story in Numbers 21 is essentially this, that, that these people on journey, these people who've been freed from slavery and on journey to this new promise, identity, right, they just get worn down by the desert. And, and after a few days and a few years and a few months, whatever, they come to this point where they're like, I am sick of this damn desert. It's hot out here. It's uncomfortable out here, Right? And you may remember that during the season, God's like providing them food every day they wake up and there's just enough food for that day and it's this bread that falls down from heaven and they eat it, but they can't store it. If they store it, it rots and it makes them sick and so they can only eat enough for today and they have no idea what's gonna happen tomorrow, but tomorrow, once again, the bread comes and they eat it and whatever. And they've just gotten to this place where they've just sort of said like, the desert's hot, the food sucks, I get that it's bread from heaven, and it was awesome for a couple days. I would sure like something else, right? Um, and has anybody asked if Moses has any idea what he's doing, right? We've been wandering behind this joker for years, and I'm sure that we just passed that same tree for like the 10th time, right? And so they started kind of hatching a plan, and they were like, you know what, at the end of the day, I'd rather be dead than spend another day out here. In fact, I don't even have to, we don't even have to kill ourselves. We could just go back to Egypt. We actually had, when we were in Egypt, yeah, we were enslaved, but it was better than this. We didn't eat bread every day, right? It wasn't so dang hot. There were things we had back there that we don't have there. And I, I just don't trust Moses anymore. And honestly, at the end of the day, I don't know if God has sort of walked away from his shift, but like we, we're done. And so they begin to organize to leave this journey to their promised future, and make their way back to Egypt. And it says that in that moment, God sees what's happening, that these people that he loves and has rescued and set free are entertaining going back into slavery. And so God sends snakes. This is like a nightmare scenario, right? They're trying to hatch a plan on how it is they're going to go back home and as they're having meetings, the sand is full of snakes. And, um, and they start getting bit. And some of the people who get bit even die. And it's there as they're digging graves for some of their loved ones that they come to their senses. And they realize, I know that we said we'd rather die than be out here, but it's actually a profound gift to be alive. We don't want to die I don't want to be bit by this snake. I don't, I don't want to bury another person I love. 
And, and I know that we were complaining about the food, but like the fact that somehow you have provided for us every single day in this journey, it just got lost on us. And I see it now. And, and I'm sorry. Like, we're so sorry. Moses, please, Moses, we know this has got to be a miserable job. We're a bunch of whiners and complainers. Um, and, and we will follow your lead. Will you please go to God and ask him to call off the snakes, right? And so Moses does the very thing. He goes to God and he says, um, your people are suffering and they are in pain and they've seen the error of their way. They want back into the covenant. They want to listen to your voice again. They realize that following you led to flourishing and when they lived life on their own terms, this is the mess that it made. Like, will you please call off the snakes? And God doesn't call off the snakes. Unfortunately, the snakes stick around. But what God does is he says, but I'll provide a cure. I'm going to give you a cure. This will heal them so that they no longer die from this. And he says, here's the cure, Moses. I want you to go get a stick, a pole. I want you to fashion uh, a snake out of bronze or copper, right? And I want you to put it on that stick, and then I want you to hold that stick up in the midst of all of God's people. And I will heal them. But the condition is not just that he makes the stick with the snake on it, but that they actually have to look at it. That should you get bit by one of these snakes, if you will look up on this stick with a snake on it, you will be healed. It's this like crazy story. Essentially, the the metaphor that's happening here is he says to the people, to Moses and to the Israelites, uh, I'm going to ask you if you want to be healed and set free from this, uh, you need to look at the consequences of your own condition. You need to look at where life on your terms leads. I want you to look up at this snake and remember that this was the consequences of living your way. And somehow when you look at this symbol of death, it will become for you life. It will become this healing agent that as you look directly at the thing that you helped create, you'll be set free from it, right? And some of you probably, your mind's already there, but like, Uh, This idea of like a stick or a cross with a snake on it is like an ancient symbol that we still have around us all the time. Like the last time an ambulance drove by you, it was on the side of it. And at the hospital, and it's the logo for the American Medical Association, right? You ever, I mean, this is like the worst marketing logo I could imagine. Like we're a hospital, here's a cross and some snakes. And we're all just like, yeah, that makes sense, sure. Uh, this, This story... This ancient 3,000-year-old story uh, that is joining other stories like it from this part of the world is sort of pouring out this meaning that there's this, um, there's this profound healing opportunity that when you face sort of the consequences of your own condition, it can in some way unlock healing for you. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to know how it is that people in my thing are going to go from living one way, and it's like they'll literally feel like they just got born a whole second time and have a completely different life. If you want to know how it is that people who are walking in one direction, their lives will literally look like some wind picked them up and pointed them the exact opposite way, and they started going that, it's going to be just like when Moses lifted the serpent up on a uh, stick, right? And so the way that the church has held this story has been to say in the same very way that those Israelites 
who, who had chosen to live life on their own terms that led to them being bit by venomous snakes, that, that all of humanity, in some sense, has been bit, that we've all got this same venom sort of flowing through our veins. It's, it's led to a fatal condition for every single one of us, that none of us will get out of this thing alive, and that the symptoms that present are really ugly, right? Like shame and fear and violence and denial, that this is what it looks like on the way to death because of this bite that we all have. I, I can't like even tell the story without thinking of The Last of Us. Anybody watching, right? Like all of humanity's been bitten. They're all going down and dying. There's sort of this need. This, this is like an ancient myth that's deep in our kind of psyche that we just keep returning to because we know there's some like healing or hope here, right? And so the way that the church has told the story is that God sees humanity suffering from this venomous bite, living out the consequences of these ugly symptoms on their way to death. And so God, in God's kindness, longing to bring us back to our senses, just like God did for the Israelites in the desert, sends a snake. And this is where the metaphor like really messes with our heads. Um, I found this out this week. This is crazy. But in the first couple hundred years of the church, of the church fathers and mothers, one of the most common titles they had for Jesus was the good serpent, right? We know about the good shepherd. We like that one. Uh, we'll have prints of that, churches of that. Like one of my not-so-secret kind of lifelong goals is to change the name of our church. This would be like a huge relief for me. Um, but like can you imagine if we changed our name to Church of the Good Serpent, Right? Like, we would make news. Um, I wouldn't want to go to that church, but I'd want to read about it. You know, that's sort of like the scent. But, but this was how those early Christians, likely with deep Jewish background, when they understood the story of Jesus, the way they told the story in shorthand is they said, he's the good serpent, right? He's the one that came to bring us back to our senses, that when he showed up and he walked among us and the world saw his life and ministry, it was like, right it is a gift to be alive. Living on my own terms has been a nightmare, right? And, and uh, we are so sorry, and how can we get sort of back in the right place with you and with ourselves, that we've forfeited our own flourishing? It, it was this wake-up call when God sends the good serpent. Unfortunately, instead of humanity receiving Christ as this, uh, this epiphany, we see Jesus as a threat, and so they kill him, and they put him, the good serpent, up on a stick, on a cross. And it's there, only then, seeing him on that cross, that we realize he wasn't the threat we were, right? And, and the good news of the gospel has been that if you will turn your attention there, if you will turn your gaze in that direction, that the same sin-sick, venomous thing that's at work in us, that was at work in those people on that day that would lead to such violence, that we can begin to be healed from it as well. So this is, you know, Nicodemus asks this um, direct but really important question. He essentially says, how is it that God saves? You know, which is worth thinking about. And um, some of us, we grew up in faith traditions where uh, that was handed to us regularly. This is called an atonement theory, right? 
atonement theory is how is it that God coming as flesh, dying on a cross, being raised again, has something to do with me and my eternity or my current healing? And like, how do you connect all those dots? And so some of us were given some schematics. We were given some theories, atonement theories, right? And some of us, we, we were given it so often and so frequently that we think the theory is the thing itself, and it's not. The theory isn't the story. The story is the good news. The theory was some dudes trying to put it together. And some of us, when we hear the story told, and it's told through a certain theory, we've actually over time found it really problematic. And so even when we come to a text like John 3.16, the trigger warning was like, I can't believe we're going to have to look at this text, or that we're going to have to think about the cross, or we're going to have to do something here. Because maybe, I don't know, maybe you were told that the reason that Jesus came and died for us was because you owed a debt that you couldn't pay, and the only one who could pay that debt was Jesus, and, and like God just has to keep clean books, right? Which some bright teenager at some point in your youth group probably said, wait, but like if, if there's like some accounting that has to happen here, and there's a debt that we owe, and like God can't get out of it uh, unless Jesus comes, then like isn't the bank the God, Right? Like, so God can't just say, nah, you're good, right? Like, God has, so there's a God above God that's like the bank of heaven that God reports to and has to keep books clean with, right? Or, or you're told that, like, the consequences for, like, what you did or the, the brokenness in your life is, is so bad that God can't possibly look on it, can't even see it, and the only way that it can be taken care of is someone has to be killed, and that the person who has to be killed is God's son. And so the story that you've been told that is the good news of the gospel, the good news that we're sharing with the world, is that the God of the universe murders his own son to punish him for something you did, right? I'm just, we don't talk about this enough, but what I want us to do is, I want to remind you, these are theories written by people trying to make sense out of a mystery that is the story of the gospel. The story is what's most important. And when we read the story on Jesus' terms here in John 3.16, the most famous evangelistic passage of them all, the image that Jesus gives us for what's going on is he says it's sort of like that day in the desert. Not exactly. It's a metaphor. How God saves will always be a mystery. We'll never fully understand it. There's plenty of images to play with. But the one that Jesus gives us here in this text says that, yes, on some level at the cross, what we see is that God took a bullet for us. But what's important is to remember who was holding the gun. That, that it wasn't God the Father holding the gun. And that Jesus took a bullet. We were the ones with the weapon right? That God's wrath, it wasn't God's wrath that was poured out on Jesus, it was our wrath that was poured out on Jesus. It wasn't sort of God's venom that was being directed at Jesus, it was the venom flowing through our veins that got put on Jesus. And it was only when we saw that up on the cross, it's only when we saw what we were capable of, what we'd done, that the one that we thought was a threat was Jesus and it turned out to be us, that the one we're unjustly murdering to preserve power or influence or whatever, that in the face of that and watching um, this person perfectly love the world and be killed for it, And in the process, look at those doing it and say, hey, I forgive you, and I'll see you in three days. That this is how it is that people 
when they look at that, when they focus on that, that it has the effect of moving from living one life to a completely different one, walking in one direction and being shaped in a totally different one. The cross is this invitation for us to look upon the consequences of our own condition, to see our own venom on display of what we're capable of. And somehow, as Jesus is up there receiving our venom in the most beautiful way, the symbol of death becomes a symbol of life. The venom that we offer becomes this anti-venom, that the wrath that we offer gets poured back in mercy towards us, right? That the curse that we put on Jesus comes back as blessing. This is how the cross works. This is why it's been such a central icon for the church. So this week, as I've been thinking about us and many of our journey with this kind of story and the way that it's raised questions for us and why many of us, if we're being honest, avoid telling it to our children, why we, uh, is because we, we've got this sense that it, it, it doesn't sound like good news and maybe it's because it's been told to us in ways that aren't. But I don't think the solution for us is to just ignore it to not talk about the cross or the crucifixion when it's been, as Jesus says, the prescription, the medicine, the healing that the world is looking for. And so Church on Morgan, here's kind of my invitation. This is what I've been thinking about this week for us, is that as we, only here on the second week of Lent, as we make our way to Easter and to that celebration, um, I want to invite us to put the cross at the center of our life for a season. That in all of our discomfort, that we, that we would practice gazing upon it. That, that we wouldn't just like Moses go, hey, he made the stick or he did the thing. I don't want to look at it, but I'm glad that it happened. But instead to hear that the healing that we long for comes from looking at it. From gazing upon it. And so the two ways I want to invite you to do that are sort of as weird as calling Jesus a good serpent. Here's two more that for us will feel just as strange. One is I would love for you to consider incorporating like a crucifix in your life in some way. That maybe in your morning quiet time or, you know, uh, if you're spending some time just reflecting or praying or journaling that you, you know, maybe your grandma gave you this cross and you stuck it in the back of a drawer somewhere and whatever. Maybe we begin to pull that out and to spend a little time with it. You know, one of the most ancient traditions in the church like hundreds, thousands of years, has been that Christians have often hung a cross on the eastern wall of their home as this sort of symbol every single day, a reminder this is where our healing comes from, that when I look at this, something about my own condition is revealed, but so is the love of God, that this is what is, I'm capable of, right? And, and naming that and recognizing it and seeing that uh, it has the very, does the very thing in us that we're longing for. One of the things that happen in churches like ours, I'm not proud of this, right, is that you you look at the cross and you go, I don't even know what to tell my kids about this. I mean, it's a strange thing to gather for worship and basically put an electric chair in the middle of the room. And what I'm telling you is, like, that's exactly what Jesus is saying to do. Like, look at the electric chair. Think about that. About what we're capable of. What we participate in. What we'll cheer for. the, The sort of violence and death the venom that flows through us. He said, I put this at the center, right? And so like at Church on Morgan, like the first couple of years we were here, we, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it. We didn't even have like a, a cross in the room because it just felt so offensive to me. I was like, I don't know. And so it was actually an elder in our community who came to me and said, hey, love it, awesome. Could we get like a cross in here? And I was like, how about a small one, you know? And we had a small one and I sort of hit it on the table. And the more that I've sort of wrestled with this and thought about this and 
the churches that many of us grew up in who said, that is too strange, awkward, and offensive, and removed it from the building completely. We, we were, according to Jesus, removing the very cure and medicine that people gathered here for. The very tool and instrument that would set people free and heal them, we've, we've stripped out of our spaces. And so what would it look like for us in this season of Lent and self-reflection to put the cross back at the center of our lives? To spend some time with this prescription that we've been offered that Jesus says has the power to, to bring new life and change uh, people in completely different directions. And the second way I would offer you to do that if, uh, beyond just sort of getting uh, physically related to a crucifix of some sort during this season is that, um, that you would join us for our first ever Good Friday service. We're going to have a service of tenebrae, which is a Latin word that just means shadows, and it's a service where we just unflinchingly look at the death of Jesus. We read through the accounts, and not to give too much of it away, but we start with a decent amount of light, and we end up leaving in utter darkness. And, uh, you know, for years, once again, we've never really had a Good Friday service because Wake County Schools says it's not Holy Week, it's spring break. And, uh, and so we've just sort of fallen in line. But this year, we're, we're pushing back a little bit, and we're resisting some. And, and I will be spring breaking, but I hope that you'll make it a priority to join us in this service of reflection on the cross. You know, the people who teach us so much about this very dynamic that Jesus is laying out for us, and I feel like we've been learning more and more about this community, especially recently, but it's the recovery community, right? Who know that, like, there's, there's no win in avoiding naming the consequences of my condition, but that show up at every meeting beginning by taking a hard look at themselves and the impact of being an alcoholic maybe has on them and has on the people around them. And they know that the day they stop showing up and looking at that and naming that and gazing on that will be the day that their own healing begins to dissolve. And so we as the church have been invited to do the same thing, to put the cross back at the center of our lives, to gaze on this instrument that's always been meant to bring healing to us, that we'd wrestle with what we're capable of, but also how profoundly loved we are at God and that that would lead us to the transformation that we long for in this season. So friends, would you join me in that? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.